Let's do that hockey. All right, welcome to Dauber Prospects Radio, episode number 90. And I'm pleased to be joined this episode by a, I don't know how many times you've been on, it's been three or four now, I think, but a regular contributor almost to the podcast, Steve Cornianos, the draft analyst. Welcome back, Steve. It's good to have you on, man. Yeah, thanks, Pete. It's always a pleasure to be uh, talking hockey with you and love the podcast. Yeah, I, I love having you on. Uh, I really enjoy our conversations. Um, so anyone who's who's not familiar with Steve, uh, he is the author of the Draft Analyst blog. You can follow him on Twitter at the Draft Analyst, and um, he's got uh, a prospect film room on YouTube where you can go and catch a whole bunch of prospect profile highlight reels. Um, so probably everyone's really familiar with with your work, both on Twitter and your site, Steve. But uh, would you mind just kind of elaborating a little bit on your your YouTube channel. Yeah, well, basically, you know, I used to have a YouTube channel called the draft analyst and I had, you know, that's where I do all my highlight packages. So throughout the course of a season, when I'm watching a lot of games, I, I record a lot of, of plays, not just scoring and, uh, you know, saves, but also just like individual shifts, little things like that. And I figured because I do all these prospect profiles on the blog, it would be nice to support that profile of that scouting report with the actual video highlights uh, themselves and so that's where you could find it at prospect film room and uh usually they run between anywhere from like four to like 15 minutes depending on the prospect uh there's also some highlight clips from individual games like for example uh, Alexis Lafreniere had a couple of crazy wild games in the Quebec league where he put up some big points I posted those as well so uh I'm, I'm looking at having at least about 150 profile videos up there by the time the draft comes around maybe that might be a bridge too far but uh as of right now there's about 50 and it's growing so by all means please go and subscribe and like and comment uh that sounds like a lot of work and i think that's why i like your stuff so much because i know how much work you put into it and i know how much hockey you watch and uh it comes through in your work your your quality of information is outstanding and on that note i'd highly recommend uh if you're looking for a draft guide uh, before the draft comes around or even after it, if you want to learn about the players that your favorite team picked, or if you're doing some fantasy hockey research, um, fantasy hockey fans listen to this podcast. Steve's isn't geared towards fantasy hockey specifically, but it's chop full of really great firsthand uh, viewing information. Uh, so your draft guide will be out in May, right? Yeah. Sometime uh, before the end of the month. Definitely. Yeah. And how many profiles are you going to do in this bad boy? I'm going to do 350. It's going to include uh, the overages as well, the draft uh, re-entries or whatever whatever you want to call them. Uh, and it's also going to have 31 uh, team previews for the NHL. And I go over draft trends. Uh, so, like, for example, if a team leans heavily towards Sweden, I'll, I'll mention that and I'll uh, quantify everything. Also going to do a full seven-round mock draft. Uh, but that I can't really start that until we figure out what the draft yeah. order is going to be, uh, which is what the delay is. Because the draft guide itself is pretty much ready now. I'm just waiting on the league to make an announcement uh, so I could produce the draft order. Because when you want to have the draft guide, you want to get an idea of who's going to be picking where and what picks they have and so on and so forth. So, uh, And then there'll be a little preview of the uh, 2021 draft as well. So it should be out uh, before or around Memorial Day weekend, maybe even sooner than that. 
Nice. And I can speak for Sam from these things that it is very good value for the, the couple bucks that, that Steve asks for it. So, Steve, uh, before we started recording, I put out on Twitter that uh, you were going to be the guest on this show. And if anyone had any questions for you, and I got a couple of hits on that. So how do you feel about starting with some questions from the listeners? Let's do it. Right on. So let's see. The first one comes from uh, Cameron Friss. He asks about your scouting process and he's and specifically um, how you take notes when you're watching hockey, um, saying that hockey is a quick game and it happens on the fly a lot. Do you take your notes as the game is, is, is happening or do you after the game collect your thoughts while it's all still fresh and then write it all down afterwards? Uh, I'd say it's everything. I mean, I, I, I could. I could be driving and I'll pull over. I'll get a thought in my head. Like, you know what? He made a really nice play yesterday and I'll pull over and I'll, I'll, I'll jot something down in a napkin if I, anything I could. Uh, but for the most part, yes. I mean, when I'm watching a game, uh, I'll take individual notes down. Uh, once the game is over, I'll, I'll go over all the notes and I'll, if there's something I forgot, but the beauty of, uh, watching as much video as I do and recording as much, uh, play and action as I do is you could always go back. You could slow-mo, you could rewind. Uh, that way you could basically, so for example, there are times where I might see a guy's first shift and the first shift, he looks like he's you know skating through mud and I'll say, it looks like an average skater. But then by the time the third period comes, he might be a little bit quicker. And that's just, that's, that's the natural progression of things where a lot of these kids are usually, by the time, you know, they're not warmed up, by the time the, you know, the, when, the, when the puck drops, uh, as opposed to, let's say, you know, let's say middle of the second period where they, and you see it all the time. Many times you see teams come back from a long road trip. It's their first period at home and they just look like garbage and the fans are booing them. And then by the time the second period rolls around, they get yelled out in the locker room by the coach. They start flying out there. So, uh, you know, it's always, it's basically uh, a, a, a round the clock process. But for the most part, I would say you, taking the notes during the game. Uh, one thing that I would recommend to people is that try not to write your notes as play is going on. Uh, try to wait for the whistles because if you, uh, if you're writing your notes as the play unfolds, as a specific play, you might miss other plays and other reactions or other decisions that that player might make. So if you say he has a, a made a good decision on a pass while you're writing it down, he could then make a bad decision on a pass and you never see it. So I know it's just one play. You know, it's a it's a drop in the bucket, but uh, yeah, it's actually a good question, and uh, hopefully, I answered it. Uh, you know, but that's that's basically what I do. It's it's I'm always taking notes. You you got to see my my I, and I and actually I, I'm old school, man. I, I take notes like in on paper with pencils and pens. Uh, so yeah, I prefer that too. Um, I guess it would depend too. Is if if you're at a game and it's live, you, you have to kind of write it on the fly a little bit and in between whistles. Um, but if you're Watching a, a game online or a recorded game that you've that you've taped, you can pause it and rewind it and whatnot as you yep. go. Um, another thing that I sometimes do if I'm at a game is I'll live tweet it, and then you know, so I'll be like, "Hey, this guy just made a really great pass," or "I'm really impressed with this guy's physicality," or "This guy has got a much better shot than I thought." I can tweet all those yep. kind of thoughts and stuff, and it's really quick. Um, you know, I can hammer it out really fast with my thumbs and then I have a record of it as well. It's another way of basically taking notes, but still generating social media content. 
Um, okay, so the next question comes from Corey Petrie, and he wants to talk about uh, how great this draft is is being viewed. He says a lot of people are saying how great the 20 draft is, and, and he's curious about how it would compare to the last year's draft, the 2019. So my problem with this question is it's really apples and oranges, right? Yeah. Like if you look at the, the two of the top players, Quinton Byfield and Jack Hughes, it's very difficult to compare those two right now if you were doing a draft now because Hughes is in the NHL. He just played an entire season as an 18-year-old in the NHL. And Quinton Byfield's barely old enough to be eligible for the draft this year. He's a really young yeah. Draft eligible players, so there's like almost two years gap between these two players, and Byfield's playing in the OHL, like a couple levels below uh, where Hughes is. So it's really difficult, I think, if you want to like rank a top ten out of the two drafts. Um, I mean, you we certainly wouldn't be able to do it off the top of our head like this either. Uh, so how about we just kind of come up with who would be the first overall pick if you combined both drafts? Would it still be Hughes? Well, yeah, uh, I would say, well, first of all, like if, if I were, if a gun, gun's to my head and I have to say which class am I picking, the twenty eight, the 2019 class or the, the 2020 class, I'm taking the 2019 class because the 2019 class was loaded with centers, like quality, quality, dominant, top line potential franchise cornerstone centers. You had about, what, eight of them, nine of them in that, let's say, top 15, uh, whereas this draft is heavy more on wingers. It's also not a deep draft with defensemen. I mean, you have Drysdale and you have Sanderson, uh, whereas, uh, you know, last year you had a couple of defensemen going in that top 10, uh, and but there was also a pretty strong overall core. You know, you had your Cam Yorks and you had your Brolbergs and you had your Mord Siders and uh, what have you. So, like, I don't know, I, I don't like, you know, combining the two because, like you said, it's like apples and oranges. However, I would say that the 2019 draft was stronger. However, I if what I do is I usually make I create uh, pre-draft resumes where not really scouting reports, but superlatives uh, based on accomplishments, individual specific accomplishments, regular season champion, captain, uh, you know, won the Memorial Cup, led the Memorial Cup in scoring, led the Super Elite in shorthanded goals, things like that. And if you compare draft resumes. Jack Hughes and all the records he set last year, right, on top of a alongside a very, very impressive team and a record-setting team in terms of first-round picks from one organization uh, versus Lafreniere, I'm going to give the edge to Lafreniere. I mean, the kid was, he's going to be the two-time CHL Player of the Year. Only guys to ever do that were Crosby and Tavares. He's going to be the Quebec League MVP back-to-back -back years. He was the top player at the Holinka uh, in his draft minus one season. He was the MVP of the World Juniors in his draft season. I mean, uh, you, and I, I don't put that much stock, barely any stock in the World Juniors. But again, when you're com com compiling a draft resume, what is more impressive? Jack Hughes having four assists in four games at the World Juniors as basically a third-line player? Or Alexis Lafreniere being the best damn player in the entire tournament? Um, and, you know, of course, you, you want to throw in everything. With Lafreniere, he's got the build, he's got the tenacity, he's got the physicality, whereas Hughes didn't have that. Um, where that I would say their vision, IQ, playmaking is equal. Uh, and, you know, you got to give the edge to Lafreniere. So, uh, and I, I, I said this in the beginning of the season, and people would call me crazy. 
I said, no, man, I'm telling you, Jack Hughes, and I love Jack Hughes, and I, he was my number one wire to wire last year, but Lafreniere, I mean, he's, he's, if he's not a unanimous first overall pick for every team, then I, I mean, I, I don't know how they could justify otherwise, but um, it's a good question. I understand why people want to know that, but overall, and the other thing is, I will say this. I think a lot of us fall into the trap, us meaning people that cover the draft, fall into this trap of getting so excited about a specific draft year that we go out and say, oh, it's a strong draft. Because, like, you know, in 1999, in, let's say, August of, of let's say, the 98-99 season, no one said, man, this draft sucks, it's weak, it's going to be the worst one of all time. No one said that in, uh, what was it, 2004, I think 2004. After Ovechkin and Malkin, I mean, it, it was just the bottom fell out. Uh, 96 was another year where there was a re- it was a really pound for pound. Only a handful of players really came out of that group that became anything of significance in the NHL. So I, I've seen people call this some type of historic draft. I don't know where the hell they're getting that. Like, how would you <laughs> how would you consider this draft historic? One, I have multiple ways that, that I measure the strength of a draft class. And a lot of the things that I do is I, I try to see where the players fit on their respective teams. Are they team captains or, or alternates? Are they top line players? Are they top three in scoring? Are they top 10 in scoring in the league? Uh, or let's say top three in scoring on their team. Are they playing 20 minutes a game a night? Are they now the, the more team and listen, the CHL is a business, the super elite is a business. Then, uh, ASM league in Finland, they're all businesses. They all want to, yeah, they want to develop players. Lottie Dottie with ideal world. Everyone gets drafted first overall, but the, the, but the bottom line is that these teams, they need to make money. And so, uh, so you, we've seen that in the CHL as well, where, yeah, they want to develop players and let kids get exposure for the draft, but they also want to fill seats. And one way that you fill seats is winning. And one way is winning is having a lot of good players on it. And the way that the junior ranks work is the better players are usually the older players. So in this particular year, compared to last year, I think it's kind of even where, you know, you have players who stand out. You know, you have your Cole Pathetis and your Marco Rossi's and your Quentin Byfields. And then you have guys who are kind of like just like kind of like they're like depth players uh, or, you know, second or third line guys like a Cross Hannes uh, for Portland where he's got this explosive skill. But the kids are basically a third liner and doesn't play a whole lot. So and another thing that I do is I use. The the how many times the under 20 programs invite first year eligibles to those tournaments. So not necessarily basing their performance at those tournaments, but at least acknowledging like, hey, you know what? We're we're a 19 heavy team, but we want to we want the 17 year old there. And this year compared to last year, I think there were less first year draft eligibles at under 20 tournaments this year as opposed to last year. So I understand why people get excited. You know, we all we bought into the hype with the Raymond and the Holtz and the uh, Byfield. And but overall, I would say it really just looks like a good draft. You know, I think the the one thing that separates it from any other year uh, outside of maybe 2018, uh, like 2015 was a really strong group. Like, that, I mean, all those guys are pretty much already if that if they're not scoring 60 points a game in the NHL. Well, number one defenseman on their team, they're, they're all stars. And that was the McDavid, Marner, uh, Ranton and draft. Whereas 16, you know, all right, uh, still waiting on it to turn around. 17, we said 17 wasn't going to be a, a good draft. And it's looking that way in terms of depth. 
so I think Lafreniere, the fact that he's such a special talent, and, and I would put him right after McDavid, and I'd even put him ahead of Austin Matthews in terms of, uh, and, and even Darlene and Svechnikov ahead in terms of pre-draft hype and resume. Uh, I would say he helps. He helps make this a strong draft, but. If you're using depth, like I don't, I don't really see this as being some sort of historic draft. So I know I kind of went long-winded on that one, but uh, yeah, yeah, that's all right. Uh, another thing that makes it difficult to compare the two is this season was cut short. You don't even have playoffs exactly. or a Memorial Cup or a U18 tournament for these guys. Some of them had an opportunity to play at the World Championship, even maybe. Sure, uh, sure. And, right. So that gives you an opportunity to see how they play against you know NHL players. Um, so. Yeah. Uh, we're going to re- respectfully pass on answering that one because I don't think yeah. you really honestly can. Um, Nikos asked a question. He wants to know if you have a favorite player that is projected to be a late first or an early second round pick that has a chance to be something special. And All right, well, yeah, there's a lot. And, and I always say this every year. I, I wish I could, I, could, I could have all these kids uh, in the first round. And I'm not going to lie. Listen, everybody has their reasons why they do their rankings and how they measure a first-round pick versus a second-round pick. I can tell you right now that I purposely will put a kid in the first round and then maybe drop him a few uh, spots later on purposely, even though he didn't do anything wrong, just to give him that exposure for that moment, whether it be you know quarterly or monthly. So people could say, you know what? Steve's got this kid in the first round, so at a minimum – he might or may be a first-round quality prospect because the fact of the matter is is that there isn't a hard line from pick 31 to pick 32. You know what I'm saying? A lot of these kids are worthy of being first-round picks, and so you're going to see kids drafted in the in the middle. Look at Nils Hoglander. Nils Hoglander, the, you know, the Canucks took him at 40th overall, and I had him ranked 20th, and I was like, you know what? Like they, This kid did everything right this year. And he, you know, went 40th and I consider him a steal and the Canucks just gave him a contract and he's looking really good. Uh, so to answer the question, there's a couple and I'll, I'll just I'll, I'm going to throw out a couple of names. I did the, the first one is, is a, a Finnish defenseman named Yoni Yermo. Now, I've been writing about this kid since p- pretty much September. He was on my August watch list. I got a chance to see him play a little bit last year. But this year he played for Jokerit, which was in a, in a junior under 20 uh, powerhouse team in the Finnish Junior League. I think it, they were the best team, at least uh, record-wise or goal-scoring-wise. And I just love the fact... He wasn't even their number one defenseman. Uh, their number one was some other kid, but uh, an old, older kid. But throughout the course of the season, Yermo was the guy that was handling all the big minutes. He plays in the power play. He's a fantastic skater. He's got size 6'3", a buck 90, I think. Uh, so he's one that, you know... In the beginning of the season, I, I go back on my Twitter feed. I was tweeting about this kid incessantly. And there wasn't really much being said about him. And then he goes to the U24 Nations and he smoked it. And then his name started popping up everywhere. Uh, so he's a kid to keep an eye on. I think when NHL teams look for that prototypical ideal defenseman, they would say he's got to have size, he's got to have skill, and he's got to have speed. And Yermo gives you all three. Uh, so look at him to be a guy that might sneak into the uh, the middle of the first round, let alone the uh, the late first round. Another kid I like a lot is the uh, the defenseman in the Quebec League. Now, some people might have uh, Lucas Cormier. Some people might have him as a first round pick. Uh, he had some injury issues. He plays for Charlottetown. 
I've always viewed him as a first-round quality pick. He was always in my, let's say, 20 to 25 range. And then over the course of the season, you know, I watch thousands of prospects a given uh, season of all ages. And so usually you have to bump that kid down if someone else impresses you or you kind of get uh, partial to certain kids. But Cormier, I like what he did with Charlotte. You know, Jeremy Poirier, who gets a lot of re- attention, he played on a team with three offensive-minded defensemen, Villeneuve and DeRoche. And basically, yeah, now, of course, Poirier was the, was the uh, I guess, the most dynamic out of the three. I think Villeneuve might have had more points, but Cormier, uh, Poirier had more goals. Well, uh, Cormier on Charlottetown is a little bit different. He didn't have a whole lot of support on that team. And he was, you know, not a big guy either. He's about 5'10", but he's a real on-ice general, a lot better defensively than Poirier is. And so I could see some teams being partial to him. And then another kid I really like a lot, doesn't get a whole lot of attention, is Brock Faber. He plays for the NTDP. I'd love to get this kid in the first round. Uh, Tyler Clevin, his partner, probably will be a first-round pick because he's big and mean and can skate. But uh, Faber is a Minnesota kid, always just does everything right. He's a right shot. I love the way he skates. He's real graceful. He's got power, good size, 6'1", 190. So, you know, like I said, we've seen it in the past where, where the teams do not go with the consensus. It happens in the top five. It happens in the top 10, the top 15. There's always going to be surprises. Last year's surprise was Simon Holmstrom the kid from Sweden, the winger from Sweden, that the Islanders took More a 23rd cider. overall. Well, yes, Cider. But the thing with Cider, though, is that we kind of saw, like, you know what? This kid's got something. So when the Red Wings took him at six, it was like, whoa. Uh, you know, they, they kind of probably took him about a good eight to seven spots, so seven or eight spots too high. Whereas with Holmstrom, I was like, where the hell did that come from? Uh, you know, he's good, but, you know, and I made a comment yeah. like that. You know no offense to you know Mr. Holmstrom and his parents and his agents and his coaches. I'm sure he's a wonderful kid, but I just didn't think that he should have been the 23rd overall pick in that draft. So uh, you're going to see a lot of kids. I, I think, you know, I was asked that question yesterday on Sportsnet 690 in Vancouver, and I really didn't answer it. So I'm going to get a chance to answer it now. And they asked me, well, if, if you looked at the NFL draft, the NFL draft was pretty much went by the consensus, at least the first 25 picks. And do I think the NHL draft is going to be like that this year? And I think the answer is no. I, I think outside of the, maybe the first 10 picks, we really have no idea. Is Noel Gunler a top 10 pick or is he, is he a, a top 35 pick? Is, is uh, you know, Thomas Bordalo or Ty Smolanik, are they first round picks or are they going to be late second round picks? We really don't know. And it all depends on the teams that are doing the drafting, their, their draft strategy for the season. Are they going to draft for need? Um, we don't, we, you just listen, the NHL teams are so tight lipped about their scouting processes. They never reveal what they're going to do. It's not like the NBA or the NFL where the, uh, the draft experts get inside information from the teams. And then they basically, before the picks are made, they tweet it out and that's it. The NHL really does that. And so if, in that regard, I really don't know. Uh, how things are going to unfold. But th- I can tell you right now, if someone asked me how many kids do I think in this draft have first-round quality, I'd put it at I'd put it at about 50. I think the, the kids picked but from probably picked from 32 to 50 are going to be first-round quality uh, that late. So uh, give or take, obviously, there'll be some kids that teams will go way off the board to take high. But I think uh, it is a pretty good – it's a pretty deep draft. I'm not, I won't call it historic, but it is a deep draft. 
Right on. Matt Walker's question was basically the same. Who will be a second round steal? So I think we covered that. Uh, John Fisher says um, he wants to know if he's got two questions. Are you going to have another ranking before the draft? Uh, Well, uh, yes and no. The thing is, and I'm not doing this to to make money and be a do a teaser for the draft guide. I'm not going to release my rankings until the the draft guide is live. Because the fact that I don't want to, uh, I want to be able to give an accurate ranking. You know, not that I haven't given accurate rankings in the past. It's just that I want to, I've been diving into kids a lot more. Usually uh, I've watched a kid, let's say five to let's say 10 games. And that was good enough for me. I said, I've seen enough of the kid play. I've seen him play good teams, bad teams, early season, mid season, late season playoffs. I have enough information. This year I wanted to switch it up a bit. And focus more on, you know, just expanding that radius to, let's say, 20 to 25 games. Uh, not with everybody. I can't do that with everybody. But, you know, so uh, and when you do that, though, you the more games you watch, the more plays you discover, the more kids you might like. So to answer his question, I would say late May at the latest. But when that late May ranking comes out in the draft guide, it's going to get posted for free on the blog. So the latest uh, you'll see it on the blog for free will be. Uh, let's say, you know, late, late May. Cool. And his follow-up question is on your last rankings, you've got uh, Helga Granz is kind of ranked a little bit low and he's been getting a little bit of traction. He's kind of high on some people's rankings and he just wants to know how come you've got him a little bit lower. First of all, where do you have him on your rankings? I got him like in the eighties. I, 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 you know, and listen, this is going to happen. Um, I think the knee-jerk reaction for a lot of people is to just go by the consensus, right? That mm-hmm. they they see a kid ranked a certain place and he has to be there, my, plus or minus five spots. And I've been doing this now for about, what, five years? And I don't work that way. If I watch a kid five times and each time I watch that kid five times, I come away unimpressed, I'm not going to give him a high ranking. Now, it could be – now, this is a, a situation that – and I'm sure we'll talk about Noel Gunler, and I'll get into that in a sec. You know, when we talk about him, where at some point you have to cut the cord. You have to say, all right, I've watched this kid. I'm having an open mind about it. What am I missing? Like, I, but then again, I, I can't dedicate all my time to one prospect. I don't care if Central Scouting, I was very surprised by that. The fact that they had Grands ranked ahead of Andre and, and Volander. I, I cannot see that. But then. And again, central scouting, they they just have a thing for big defensemen. Now, you know, while there's also a big defenseman who could skate, but and you know, obviously Emil Andre is a small, he's about five nine. But I can't see how anyone who watched the J20, the Super Elite in Sweden, and watched all the tournaments and watched their play in the SHL came away with the fact that <coughs> excuse me, came away with the fact that Granz is the best. Swedish defenseman of his class. I can't see that at all. And my issues with Granz, he's a very good skater. He's got an excellent first pass. He's got a really hard shot. He's the guy you want in the power play. I think his decision-making is borderline at best. I don't think he's got a high hockey IQ. I don't think he's a playmaker. I don't think he's very decisive in terms of taking over games. If you watch Amy Alondre play, now, yeah, okay, the Super Elite, it's not a, a, a physical mean league where you know they got to worry about their heads getting chopped off but you watch Andre out there this kid he wants the puck on his stick all the time 
He sticks up for his teammates. He, he he's he's a gamer. You know, he's a real gamer. He battles hard. When they played together, and, and this is to really answer the question is the last chance that I gave Gronz. And Gronz was, by the way, a, a preseason first rounder for me. So I did have him high. When they had the U18 Five Nations tournament, they paired Andre with Gronz together. And you figured, okay, you know, righty-lefty, good combo. You got size on one side. You got uh, skill finesse uh, on the other side. And Andre significantly outplayed Gronz. Miles better than him. And there was one game, I think, where uh, the Swedes were down to five defensemen. It might have been the last game of the tournament. So it's four games and four nights. They were down to four, uh, five defensemen. I'm like, all right, I want to see who steps up. Maybe Gronz will kind of like take over and be like, hey, this is – and it, it, he didn't do it. He, he was a no-show, and Andre was bailing him out time and again. So I get people look at the stats. They see that he was one of the top-scoring defensemen in the – I think it's the, the J20 North, no, uh, Nora, whatever it is. Uh, and he, he went to the SHL, and he looked pretty good there. But, again, I cannot get that impression th – those negative impressions out of my head. So I was a little surprised. And the thing is – you talk to enough scouts and NHL types, they'll tell you they openly admit that Gronz had a bad tournament. But for me, I, 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 I was already kind of low on him to begin with and was dropping him. And then I watched him in that tournament. I'm like, all right, I'm not going to waste any more time with him. So can he put up a lot of points? Yes, but I see him as the Ole Levy type where he could power play a quarterback. He could be on a top pairing, but I, I don't think he puts the – he just really strikes fear into any opposing player. I mean – Maybe a goalie because of his skating and his shot. But I, I think that, you know, I'd rather have, like I said, I like tough kids. Tough kids that could, uh, you know, do really well at the end of shifts, uh, battle hard. They have a really good on-ice demeanor. And Grant just, he just doesn't do it for me. So hopefully that answered the question. Yeah, yeah. Where would you say you had him ranked? Around 50 or 60? No, I got him ranked like in the 80s. <laughs> like 80-something. Yeah, I'm that is low in comparison. Yeah, so yep. just for context for the listeners, if they don't know, I'm, I'm looking at his uh, Elite Prospects page, and they've got Future Considerations ranks him 35th. Elite Prospects uh, ranks him 21st. Uh, he's ranked 6th for European skaters by North American Central Skating. And our Dauber Prospects European scout, Yoki, ranked him out of the European players. He ranked him 11th. So everyone pretty much has him as a, a late first possibly second round you got him a little yeah. bit further back than that that's fair well, that, well and the that happens. That, there's lots of times where guys go into the draft and everyone has like all the i'm using air quotes here experts prospect experts put him in a, in a certain yeah. range and then they end up either not being drafted at all or, or going two or three rounds later um and you know usually not every time but usually the, the nhl scouts are proven right yeah, I mean, well, the thing is, too, about my rank, my rankings are not, I don't try to predict the draft. I try to predict NHL uh, production, NHL potential. So I, I see if I'm going to put a defenseman like Granz in the late third round, then I see him at best as a maybe number four defenseman or a number, th if, if the stars align, maybe a number three defenseman. I definitely do not see him as a number one top pairing type. Um, and that's based on, like I said, a variety of factors. And, you know, again, like, you know, if you're a defenseman, you got to be counted on late in games and he's real sloppy with the puck and he makes bad decisions. And what happens in the NHL, the, the AHL, he's going to go to a more physical league where they're going to be beaten up on him. And then on top of that, he's going to, you know, uh, if he's, if he's, uh, sloppy with his puck management, coaches won't, uh, won't let that fly. And you bench a kid 
You cut down his minutes, and now you basically have an offensive defenseman, like a, let's say, and he becomes basically John Moore, where he's a first-round pick because he could skate and he's very impressive, but in the end, he can't make good decisions. You can't rely on him defensively, and what do you have? You have a fifth or sixth defenseman where you could find in the undrafted ranks, you could find in the free agent ranks, in the later rounds in the draft. And so, I, I like I said, I, I, I've been it's, – it's a very good question, and I, I, I'm, I'm – like I said, but I'm prepared for questions like that because if I'm going to go against the grain – and detract from a kid's impressive season statistically, I have to back it up. And I, I, I go over all my notes. I don't just throw a ranking out there for the sake of ranking them there. Um, and well, I guess, like you said, it's a disagreement. Uh, I had Pavel Dorofayev ninth, ranked ninth last year, and he got drafted like late in the third round. So, you know, it happens. You know, sure. we'll, we'll have to just wait and see. We'll have to wait and see. You know, uh, give, let's see how they turn out in the NHL. All right, so that's it for listener questions. Now it's on to specific players that I kind of want to pick your brain on. The first one that comes up is uh, American defenseman Jake Sanderson, son of NHL alumni Jeff Sanderson. He's a player that has been shooting up a lot of the rankings this year. You have him on your latest ranking at 15, and I think that is a plus 17 from where you ranked him last time. So he's a hot riser on your list as well. You yep. recently also did an article comparing him to Drysdale, uh, and it was really close. Uh, and I really liked a lot of the arguments that you had to say about each player, and, and I didn't disagree with any of your who you gave the edge to in certain categories, whether it be toughness or skating or offense or, or defensive. Um, so this is a guy who I don't think is going to be picked before Drysdale at the draft. I don't think anyone yeah. thinks that. But I think almost everyone now thinks that he's going to be the next defenseman taken. Uh, so a lot of the listeners to this podcast are in Canada. And it's really difficult for us Canadians, eh, to watch the U.S. national team. We just don't get them on TV very often. Um, so why don't you just do a, a quick overview about what his game's uh, all about and um, why you like him. Well, I would say just like to make it easy, he's basically like a Ryan McDonough type. He's a defenseman that has number one potential, number one on a good team potential, not number one on a bad team potential, uh, where he could log 22 to 27 minutes a night. Uh, he's a multi-situational defenseman. You want him on the ice late in games. You want him there to quarterback the power play. You want him to anchor the top penalty killing unit. Uh, whereas Drysdale is all explosiveness and finesse and excitement. Uh, Sanderson, you now he's a wonderful skater, much like Ryan McDonough. He's a wonderful skater, but there's more power to his game. And the one thing that I mentioned in the article when I compared the two was that the OHL shrunk, right? Uh, the players that played in the OHL collectively were not as big and thick as they were, let's say, three or five, six years ago. Uh, and goal scoring was at a 25-year high. Now, that doesn't mean that – who cares? Like, Jamie Drysdale exploited that, and he deserves to be considered the best defenseman in the draft. However, the NTDP plays in the USHL uh, where goal scoring is about a goal to goal and a half less. In addition to that, the NTDP plays half their schedule against NCAA Division I programs. And if you're not familiar with NCAA college hockey, it's usually the ages – the average age of those teams are about 22 years old. Some teams have seniors that are about 24, 25 years old. Uh, very rare do you see a, a kid on any college team uh, that's 17 years old 
whereas the NTDP entirely is nothing but 17 years old, 17 year old kids, at least in the first half of the season. And so Sanderson and, and he played big powerhouse programs, Boston University, University of Michigan, University of North Dakota, University of uh, Minnesota, uh, all, I mean, Wisconsin. And what do those teams have? Those teams have first round picks. Zegris on BU, Turcotte on Caulfield, and Ke- uh, Keandre Miller on Wisconsin, uh, so on. So in those games, he was the NTDP's number one. And th- they didn't win a lot of those games, but they were close. And in those games, Sanderson was just trucking. He was trucking dudes who were like 23, 24 years old. Uh, they, they really didn't have an answer for him. So I know at first glance, you look at his stats, like, well, he put up, what, 27 points in 40-something games, big whoop. But you have to also understand that he did that, and most of those points came in the second half of the season when they played mostly the USHL and under-18 international programs because they got rid of the college uh, schedule mostly in the, in the second half. So what you have is this, like I said, a, a fast-skating Ryan McDonough type with a hard shot, he could score from the point, he could run the power play. I give the edge to Drysdale in terms of the finesse and the excitability, but anybody who watched Drys- uh, Sanderson in the second half of the year, specifically at the All-American Prospects game and at the U18 Five Nations, he was the best player on the ice. And there were a lot of good players on the ice in those uh, two examples. So I think you're definitely getting a franchise-caliber defenseman. Uh, may- I think his, his floor would be like, like a Jacob Chikrin. Similar player, by the way, you know, big bodied, fast skater who could, you know, put up maybe 25, 30 points a year. Uh, but that's his that's his floor. I think his ceiling is definitely Norris caliber, you know, one of the top defensemen in the NHL. So he's I don't think he'll go like you said, I don't think he'll go ahead of Drysdale. But I think he'll definitely be, if not a top 10 pick or a top five pick, he'll definitely be a top 15 pick. So another thought on this is a lot of the people that listen are this is a kind of a fantasy hockey podcast more prospects than fantasy but that's certainly an angle that i try to cover on the show a lot so drysdale certainly has more offensive upside i think uh more fantasy appeal that way but there's a lot of leagues that reward defensemen and skaters for uh block shots and hits and penalty sure. minutes uh, it's safe to say that Sanderson is going to far surpass Drysdale in the greasy stats categories. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, in terms of like shooting, uh, Drysdale wasn't as, didn't, he didn't register as many shots as I thought he would this year. He wasn't averaging, uh, like three, three and a half shots a game. I think I might've been lower than that. I might be mistaken, but with Sanderson, the NTDP traditionally is a forward centric attack. So, uh, he only averaged, he averaged under two shots a game. For the NTDP, I think I'm, I'm, I mentioned it on the uh, on the uh, article that I com- that I did the comparison. That's right. But again, listen, when when Ryan McDonough and I know we keep using him as an example because it's easy, but it's it, it is true. When he was at Wisconsin and he was there for I believe three full years, he he wasn't putting up a lot of none. That, those Wisconsin teams were very deep with a lot of first round picks. Uh, and then he goes to the Rangers and he's playing. 27 minutes a night and he's, he's hitting the 40, 45 point mark. So, which is pretty much what you want out of, uh, you know, uh, your defenseman from a fantasy standpoint as, and, and they're getting the hits and the block shots and the uh, penalty minutes. He's a pretty clean player though. I mean, he's not a, because he's so quick with his feet and he's so smart IQ wise, you rarely see him out of position where he has to resort to a stick foul or something like that. And he, he, 
he he's one of those guys that he's so solid and tough and thick and strong, but he doesn't do it in a dirty way. Whereas Clevin, Tyler Clevin, he's dirty. He'll elbow a guy in the head. He'll hit him, he'll cross check him into the boards. Whereas Sanders is not like that. So I think if you want if you want less offense, more defensive stats, you got to go with Clevin uh, from the NTDP. But if you want the more I guess diverse uh, skill set and getting points across the board, fantasy points across the board, you got to go with a guy like Sanderson. Yeah, penalty minutes are are starting to fade out of a lot of leagues because fighting is just on the decline. So, I mean, you don't have guys racking up 300 minutes anymore. You get like between 60 and 100 for your high-end penalty minute players. So this is not enough disparity there to to really reward that. And then you have coaches looking at players like Jake Sanderson and saying, yeah, look, man, you're more valuable to me on the ice than in the exactly. penalty box. Um, yep. You know, you got to defend yourself. And sometimes you're going to have, you know, you're going to get caught and you're going to have to, you know, take the chance of taking the penalty and, and we'll live with that. But um, don't goon it up out there. Don't be a meathead. Yeah. Uh, OK, so let's stick in North America. And specifically in the NCAA. And another player that I'm really curious to talk about is Dylan Holloway, center with Wisconsin. Uh, he was the uh, Canadian Major, Major Junior Player of the Year um, in the BCHL, I think it was. And this is his first year of uh, college hockey as a true freshman, 18-year-old kid. And uh, he kind of started the season off pretty slow, but really sped up a little bit. You have him ranked 13th in your rankings, which is pretty much where you had him the last time. So he's a nice, consistent mid-round pick, center, winger, versatile player. I think he can go up and down a roster. Uh, tell me a little bit about how you like Holloway. Well, I, I would definitely advise people to not look at the stats because, number one, like I said, college hockey. And I, I posted on my Twitter uh, account about two weeks ago the goals per game average but every league that draft prospects come from, all the European leagues, all the North American junior leagues, the NHL, the AHL, uh, the European elite leagues with the men, and also the, the five major NCAA conferences. So uh, the AHA, uh, the WCHA, the NCHC, Hockey East, and ECAC. And goal scoring, and I believe the Big Ten was among – the lowest combined goals per game. So that basically the average game in hockey uh, in the big 10 was, I think 5.25 goals a game in the OHL. The average goals per game was like 7.8. So you're talking about two and a half more goals a game are scored in an OHL game this year, as opposed to a college game in the big 10, which was uh Holloway's conference. So I, uh, we went through this with Brady Kachuk where we, People were just talking about his stats and, oh, he only had 30 points and or 20-something points. And, and I'm like, listen, man, the college game is just so different. And I understand that, it, you know, and and I know in Canada they play a lot of college hockey on TV. TSM plays the bean pot. Um, I got a chance to see a lot of Holloway this year, and I followed Wisconsin uh, very closely because someone challenged me about my, my uh, assessment of Cole Caulfield. And I'm like, you know what? I'm already watching them for the Hollywood, and I got to watch them even more now because of Caulfield. And uh, what I came away with was a big prototypical power forward. You mentioned versatility. Absolutely. He's got agility. He's got a great shot. He was the, uh, I think he, I forgot, uh, I forgot his team. Was it, was it Okotoks that he played for 
in the in the AJHL. I forgot which team he played for, but he was the top player in that league. He was dominant at the uh, World Junior A Challenge. Uh, the World Junior A Challenge. He was also one of the top players at the uh, CGHL. Well, I didn't play in the CGHL Top Prospects game, but but anyway, the point stands that we've seen him produce a lot of points against his peers. Whereas in college hockey, he's not really playing against his peers because the average age, the average player is about four or five years older than he was. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, Wisconsin had a lot of issues this year. Wasn't really Tony Granado's fault, but they had Turcotte, they had Caulfield, they had Keandre Miller. They had a lot of big name very prospects coming. Yeah, very, very young. Goal scoring was very difficult to come by in that conference. And so that reflected his stats. But I think if you put him in a situation now, there were times where you watched him and he was the best player on the ice. He was dominating shifts. Like I said, his agility is a very big part of his game is skating. You don't have a guy. What's he listed at? Like six, one, one ninety, or whatever he is. You don't have a guy or winger or forward with that size who can move the way Holloway moves. So I would say he's definitely an upside pick because there's always the chance that he struggles in the beginning and a coach will be like, you know what? This kid is so smart and defensively responsible. I'm going to make him a checker, and you know, and that's unfortunately it's it, it happens. But um, that's why I, I I moved him out of my top ten. I used to have him in the top ten. I think I'll, I'll, I'm not as bullish on him as I as I was, but I still think that the potential is there to be a really nasty NHL player, one that no team's going to want to play against and cause a lot of matchup problems for opposing coaches. What do you think his uh, timeline to the NHL is? I mean, he's I think he's got another at least one year of college before whoever drafts him wants to sign him and turn him pro. Um, I was thinking two years. Uh, I talked about him on the Buzzcast uh, earlier this week when I was guesting on that, and Russ was suggesting that he might actually be better suited moving on to the AHL sooner than later. What's your thought on that? Well, I agree to an extent. It's just because the way the league is going. However, you know, if you talk to enough hockey people and I'm talking about coaches, uh, you know, scouting directors, scouts, a lot of them will tell you that the agents are the ones that are pushing these kids to leave that almost across the board, NHL teams, uh, NHL scouting departments, college uh, uh, administration and staff, they are all advising these kids to stay in college, not because they want to get a degree or you could still have fun and, and party. You get, you know, it's really because of their development. It's it's all basically stages where if, if freshman year, year one, you're a depth player and you're maybe getting a few times of being a, um, a top three guy, right? A first line guy playing 18 to 20 minutes a night. Well, you're going to get that in your next year. And then by your third year, your goal should be to be the most dominant player in all of college hockey or the most dominant player in your conference or on your team. And what's happening with these kids is it's one and done. And a lot of that is driven by the agents. The agents are saying, no, go get your money. You're not going to get this chance again. What if you get hurt? It's almost become like the NBA and the NFL where teams now, and, and Turcotte is a perfect example, where Anyone who watched Wisconsin this year, clearly, and the World Juniors for that matter, if you want to use that as a, a small, slight measuring stick, is that Alex Turcotte did not have a good year this year. He was considered a top three pick last year. He did not play like a top three pick at all. Uh, and the Wisconsin staff were basically telling this kid, no, you got to stay. And his camp was just saying the opposite. Listen, the kid's free to do whatever he wants. Um, uh, but I, I think with Holloway... 
it's all going to boil down to what his agent's telling him. I think if since Turcotte is gone, there's reason, legitimate reason to think that next season, this kid will be possibly the top line center on Wisconsin with Cole Caulfield as his winger. So there goes your statistical problem right there. You know, you're basically <laughs> feeding Cole Caulfield bucks all the time. Um, but again, I, I don't know. I don't know which way he's going. Now, from a from a development standpoint, did I see, you know, uh, uh, issues in his game? Where uh, not really, but like if he goes to the AHL, it's it's risky because he goes to the AHL and it's a big gap from AHL to college. And what if he gets down on himself? He's not playing as well as he should be. The pressure, the fans. He's on social media. Oh, people are calling him. Look at Matt Boldy. Look at the treatment that Matt Boldy got on social media. Because he had a very quiet first half, but if you watched Boston College, he didn't. And we talked about this on our World Junior podcast that he he should have been invited to that camp. He he just had a lot of bad puck luck, and then magically, uh, you know, people were calling him a bust. Oh, I knew Baldy was a bust. He's been a terrible. He's been garbage, saying these horrible things about an eighteen-year-old kid. And then and what happens? He he was one of the best freshmen in college hockey in the second half. Uh, and so, you know, like I said, I, I think. I'd always advise these kids if I could to to stay in college at least one more year, but again, we, we just don't know. Uh, I, I think the AHL might be a a little bit much for now. I think I'd like to see him go to college and dominate his you know his level, and then you know give the NHL because right now the NHL team if he signs a deal a pro deal and he goes to the AHL right at, right after being drafted. The NHL team's going to be like, well, we, we really don't know what this kid's going to do because, like I said, he was more of a depth player for Wisconsin where you want him more like, hey, you know what? The kid's got nothing left to prove. He dominated his team. He dominated his league. Let's bring him into the AHL, get him under our, our guidance, and sky's the limit. So we just have to wait and see. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. Button was on this podcast earlier, and uh, we were talking about not this player, but this uh, this idea and he's like players should dominate the league they're in before they move up no matter what league they're in if it's the OHL or if it's the NCAA or it's the AHL they should be a dominant player in that league before you consider moving them up the food chain into the next level uh, and I agree with that I think players when you when you move them up to the next level they should be of the mindset of well, it's goddamn about time. Like, how much more do I have to learn where I'm playing right now? I belong there as opposed to, ooh, this is, I'm really nervous. I hope I can make the team. I hope I don't look out of place and look stupid. I hope I'm ready for this. It's just, it could be devastating to their confidence and development. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially, and then, and the, I think the, as, as much as I hate to admit it, the, the social media aspect, uh, we, what happened with Maxime Comtois at the World Juniors, like, a lot of these fans just don't get it, you know, like to basically it's one thing to, to say I like player A over player B, but to basically label a kid a bust after and that, that's basically been like a plight of mine on on social media after Askarov and what happened with him. Like you, you, you're going to tell me this kid had like a basically a record setting season for a goalie. 16, 17 years old, the most decorated goalie in international hockey history for a teenager. And he has two bad, three bad periods, the world juniors. And now we're going to call him a bust. And I wouldn't touch him with a 10 foot pole and blah, blah, blah. Well, we all know that it's just, a, it's a complete fallacy to base any assessment or to base the, 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 the foundation of your assessment on two freaking games in a tournament. Um, 
you know, so it's it's actually kind of tough to do that. I know I just said that about Hellgate Grands, but with Grands, I I wasn't high on him to before that <laughs> tournament. So, you know, I, I don't want people to think that I'm like oh, I saw one tournament, and he's done. But the the uh, yeah, so it's it's a, it's very very you, you got it's it's development. Like you know, if you get accepted when when like Harvard accepts a, a student that wants to become a lawyer they don't expect that kid to go and be part of the top law firm in, in New York city or Toronto or, you know, uh, Milan, uh, like, like the, the next year, like it's a process. You have to earn your stripes. And so I think fans need to just learn how to become patient, but you know, uh, good luck with that. Yeah. And I, uh, Maxime Comtois took a lot of heat on social media too, after he, didn't score on the shootout for Canada at the World Juniors. Uh, people need to remember these are kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was good for Anaheim. Uh, he he was he was like a proven almost, even though it was like only like two weeks. In those two weeks or ten a month, he proved himself as a really good prospect. And he was like, good for Canada at the World Juniors, and he just yeah, he, he shit the bed on that power play. Sure, but uh, people jumped down his his neck. Uh, let's move on. The next guy I want to talk about is another American, and he played with Chicago Steel in the USHL. He'll be headed to Northeastern University. Uh, this is right, San- my alma mater. Yeah, yeah, is it? Oh yeah, oh yeah, Northeastern. But I mean, the the thing about Northeastern was when I went there, it was a commuter school. They would let anybody in with any kind of grades, and all the teams pretty much stunk. And now Northeast is like one of the top 50 schools in the, in the, in the nation. And they have this monster hockey program that all the kids want to play for apparently. So that's nice. That's good. That's good. Uh, So the player we're talking about is uh, Sam Colangelo, Colangelo and Colangelo, Colangelo, even, even more accurate. Uh, So he's ranked uh, 63rd by future considerations, 83rd by elite prospects, uh, you have him much higher than that. You got him yeah. 29th. You got him in the, in your first round, basically. And that's, uh, up plus two. So not only just in the first round, he's, he's in it with a little bit of room to spare. Um, big kid, six two, two hundred and five. 205. Uh, what's, what's the scouting report on Colangelo? Well, I'm going to drop him a little bit into the, uh, into like the, the mid thirties, uh, not really a knock on him as much. Uh, the thing about Colangelo is he is he's a huge upside pick. He's like you said, he's got the size. He played for a very good team this year. The Chicago Steel were probably one of the top five junior teams in the whole world. I mean, the, the, they rolled out three lines. They, they're going to have a potential top three pick in next year's draft on defense and Owen Power. Then they have Sean Farrell and Brendan Brisson. I mean, Brendan Brisson's likely going to be a first round pick in this year's draft, which it's not common for the USHL to have this much talent on one team that isn't the NTDP. Usually it's it, you know, all the top American kids that go to the NTDP and the rest of the uh, elite American talent, they either go to the uh, Canadian Hockey League and they kind of just spread out throughout you know the 50 states. With this kid, he's a Boston area kid. Uh, if you watched him play in high school, you saw a lot of potential. He's played at a lot of, he, I think he was on the, he was on the select team for the Holinka, I believe. And, so you see a lot. The thing is with him is he could skate and he could shoot. So you got a big kid who could skate and shoot and be a playmaker. When he's not shooting, he's playmaking. When he's not playmaking, he's shooting. Um, the one thing you got to worry about with him, though, is that, you know, like the, the, the situation was just too perfect 
for him in Chicago. It was like it. It was basically a nightly track meet. Now the USHL doesn't really like that. It's generally a low scoring league defense first type of situation. Well, but with that team, they were just steamrolling everybody. Uh, and I went back and I looked at a couple of games against tougher opponents, and he wasn't really as noticeable. Uh, so I, I think what happened was in the beginning of the season. Uh, I, I was just really intoxicated by how impressive he was at jersey flapping. Uh, you know, the thing is I like to see about big guys is their agility. And one way to, to see a player's agility is how they operate off the cycle, right? How are they operating when they're executing set plays and, and weaves in the offensive zone when the defense is basically reacting to what they're doing. And in that, you see Colangelo always keeping his feet moving, always, you know, cutting different directions and getting into those soft spots. Now, part of that is having elite teammates with high hockey IQs that could also do the same. And it's just basically open ice everywhere. There's always open ice because the other team doesn't know how to react to it. They, they, they don't know who to mark. Some teams will say, well, just stay in your box and we're good. But at some point, you, you got to leave your box and that creates openings. And how does that openings happen? With agility, with fakes, with the stutter steps and jukes and things like that. And so with that you see Colangelo do a lot of that so uh definitely huge potential some might say well wh- how do you rank him ahead of uh, some of the more heralded prospects who let's say play in tougher leagues again like I said it, it when a big guy uh has that hunger for the puck and he's that agile and he could just blister it off the curl off his back foot flat-footed really soft hands uh I'm I'm kind of gambling. I know I'm higher on on him. It has nothing to do with the you know anything except the fact that I I watched him early on. He really impressed me at World World Junior A Challenge. Uh, he was fantastic at the World Junior A Challenge. Uh, so we'll see. I, I'm definitely bullish on him. So if people want to rank him in the third round or second round, I could see it. But I, like I said, I've been watching this kid for a while, and I just I'm you know I'm going to punish him a little bit. Uh, in my final rankings, but I still think that some teams have him pretty high on their on their draft board. So it sounds like you wouldn't be surprised if he goes to the NCAA and either um, kind of struggles with, with the transition he, a little bit, or if he goes to the NCAA and and is dominant. Like you, well, obviously you're bullish on him. So would you be surprised if he went boom or bust at the at the next level or or throughout his career? No, I mean, well, yeah, I, I could see well. No, he's not really necessarily a two-way player. He's an offense-first kind of a guy. But I do think that because of his physicality, listen, he's going to be in for a, 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 an eye-opener when he goes to college. Because, the, But the, the thing is, you have to understand, is everybody that he's playing against right now, they're going to be in college. He's going to play against them. I mean, the USHL is the primary source of uh, a primary pool for talent for the NCAA, the, the main Division One program. So it's all going to be familiar to him to an extent. And Northeastern, though, is not really a team. I mean, a couple of years ago, they were they were a top line, a one line team. But now they're more like team oriented. And I think a guy like Colangelo, you have to figure that the Northeastern, like Madigan and staff, they view him as a potential top six player or top three player relatively soon. Uh, so I, I don't think he'll have a tough time transitioning. I could definitely see him, though, being a three year guy, two, three year guy in the NCAA before he comes over to, uh, you know, the AHL, the NHL. Right on. All right. Let's talk about some uh, European players because I know you watch a lot of European hockey too. Sure. Uh, okay. So first player I want to talk about, and I've seen him play, and I'm really not sold on him, and you got him ranked really high. 
You've got him ranked seventh. And I'm talking about Russian left winger Rodion Amirov. And yeah. he, he's generally ranked anywhere in the first round, uh, 13 to 25 uh, is where he's widely considered. But from the small sample size that I was able to watch him this season, um, I, nothing really stood out to me that I really liked. So tell me what I'm missing. All right, well, the first the first time he stood out uh, for me was at the U18 Five Nations against the Jack Hughes NTDP last February. I was like, who the hell is this kid? Uh, and then after that, he went and he played for Russia at the World Championships, the Under-18 World Championships, and he pretty much beat Team USA. I mean, Askarov was a big part of that, but he was fantastic in that tournament. So I'm like, all right. This kid clearly, for, not only for Russia to invite this kid to play on that team, but to, to give him big minutes and on the power play, on the penalty kill, uh, he's got to be something special. And so I went back, I watched some of his MHL games. I'm like, all right, he's the bee's knees. He's, a, he's, the, he's the best Russian forward from that class, the, the, the 2000, late 2001, 2002 birth year. And then uh, he earned a promotion uh, to UFA. That very rare, very rare for a young kid to basically go from a depth role in the MHL in, in, when his, in his pre-draft year to start off his draft year to play for UFA. And we all know at the KHL, these kids play like two seconds a game. They, they, you know, but watching him play in those uh, the few times I did, I'm like, you know what? Not bad. He's holding his own. And then Obviously, watching a season progress, he got invited to the uh, uh, the Super Series. He played at the at the Super Series with Maxim Groshev. Uh, you know, more of like of more of a depth player in that. You you kind of didn't think he was going to make the World Junior Squad, and he didn't. Uh, but the key thing for me was my my thing was well, listen, I got to see how this kid performs against his peers in his draft season. And obviously, Ufa was like, okay, dude, you've played like whatever twenty games, like go back to the Junior League. And he went back to Tolpar. I'm sorry, with uh, to um, yeah, to Tolpar in the MHL, which is Ufa's you know farm team. And he was the best player probably in the league for a a, a two week period where he was playing 21, 22 minutes a game. He was being used in all situations. The thing I love about Amirov is that he's dangerous in tight spaces. In tight spaces, and that's the majority of the NHL game and the AHL game. That it's played in the trenches as much as we want to say goal scoring is up and it's a McDavid and everyone's high flying like the majority of the games are one of the trenches and we saw that with the Blues and the and the and the Bruins uh especially with the Bruins this year with the way that they beat up people and the way the, the Blues beat up people is that you you need to have the ability not necessarily size not necessarily be uh uh you know a brute but to have the ability to it just evade pressure to handle physicality and to stick handle in traffic, and that's a big thing for me, is decision-making while you're stick handling in traffic. How many times do you see guys with the puck, like, oh, no, I want nothing to do with it, and they just dump it down low, go for a chain. You see it time and again. I'm always yelling at my TV when kids do that, or NHL plays do that. Uh, with Amirov, you don't get that. He is willing to, like, the, you see the double team collapsing towards him, and you're saying to yourself, dude, get rid of the puck, get rid of the puck, and he'll just put, like, a little shoulder fake, a little head fake, and it's almost like he's doing it on purpose. He's luring a double team towards him. And what if there's a double team, that means that there's a numbers advantage on the other side of the ice in your favor. And he exploits that a ton. So uh, I know I'm being bullish on him. Uh, I got him, what, seventh, eighth overall. But I, I, he's never given me a reason to not 
to, to, he's never given me a reason to drop him is what I'm saying. Uh, and so he's an example of someone like he's basically the opposite of Lucas Raymond with Lucas Raymond. I was, uh, well, Noel Gunler, and well, I guess we'll talk about him in a second, uh, is that, uh, you know, I was high on him and then I, I viewed reasons to, to drop him. Whereas Amirov did not give me any reason to drop him. So as simple as that. All right. So he's tall. He's six foot, but he's a little bit thin. 168. Not a lot of bulk there, but that's okay. He's 18 years well old. He's got though. lots, very, lots. Very well balanced though. It's, it's, a, it's deceptive. His, his build because of the fact that he could absorb hits and he, he could still control the puck with bigger guys howling him all over the place. So that was, a, that's another big reason why I have him as high as I do. And you talk about his ability to be dangerous in tight spaces. So you're talking about tips and rebounds in front of the net, Thomas Holmstrom style, or are you talking about um, no, his ability the board, to be in the corners on, on the board game? Huh? Yeah, along the boards. Uh, you know, you, when when a guy enters the zone, uh, zone entries are a big thing, and they should be because it's 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 it basically will determine that the 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 length of the life of that possession. If you hit the line, you just dump it in. You're basically giving the other team the opportunity, especially if the other team has fast defensemen, to beat, win that 50-50 battle and get the puck and start their breakout. And you just basically gave up possession for the hell of it. Whereas with Amirov, when he enters the zone, it's it's very calculated. He's agile too, so it's not like he's always a north-south guy. He'll enter the zone, he'll he'll move laterally. And you know, and I'm always looking at how the opponent is reading that 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 player with the puck. Are they playing him tight? Are they giving him too much room? If they're giving him too much room, is it working out in their favor? Because, you know, like, like for example, when, uh, like, McDavid. When McDavid, McDavid is barreling towards you at top speed, you can't hold your line because he's just going to go around you. So you have to basically, you got to brace, you got to brace yourself for that, you know, you know, play your angles right, try to maintain as, as decent a gap as you can, and then, you know, maybe if you can make McDavid react to you rather than the other way around. And uh, that's what I like about Amirov is, is the other team's always reacting to what he's doing. And it's not like he's like, you know, and he even did this in the KHL against older opponents too, so. All right. So it sounds like he's got a, a pretty high skill set and uh, yes. a variety of tools, you know, good in open spaces, good in tight spaces, um, good vision and and mobility. Those are all... Very translatable assets yeah. for NHL. Um, uh, is he KEHL contract through 2021? So he's a few years away still, but most of these players are. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, that's the that's the, the issue with the Russian kids now. Not only is the issue uh, with the, the contracts that they already have in the KHL, but the KHL is making a big push to keep these kids in Russia. They're going to offer them a lot of money. They, they basically want to, them to, to become the future of their league, the KHL. And so it's always a worry. So do I think that Amiro is going to be the seventh or eighth overall pick in the draft? Probably not. And then we had the issue this past year with the Rangers and Vitaly Kravtsov. Took a little bit of a gamble on him. Eighth overall pick. They drafted him ahead of some players that, uh, you know, were, were more, I guess, uh, I guess noticeable and, uh, noteworthy and he went back to russia they sent him over to america he it just the bottom fell out in hartford so he went back to russia and they had to come have him come back to the ahl he's in the ahl he's not really meeting up uh, expectations so i think 
teams are going to be like, you know, we love these Russian kids. But again, I am ranking based on NHL potential. So I think that if at some point, like a Panarin, where, where Amirov says, although Panarin wasn't drafted, but uh, uh, I, I think where an Amirov will be like, like, you know what? I've done this Russian thing. I'm 23 years old. It's time for me to go over to the NHL and see what I could do there for a couple of years. Because again, these kids are still 17, 18 years old. There was one, actually, it was kind of funny. There's, there's this one kid, is uh, Stanislav Rangayev, and he's putting up decent numbers in the MHL. He's 17 years old. And uh, you would look at his stats, look at his size. He's got good size. He's a, he's a scoring forward. You could say, you know what? Uh, yeah, I draft him. He's a pretty good prospect. But then the MHL on their front page ran a story about he and his girlfriend. And his girlfriend's like a 15-year-old cheerleader for one of the teams. I'm like, oh, there's no way this kid's leaving Russia now. He's got like every picture was of he and his girlfriend and how much fun they how much they're in love. And I'm like, there is no way unless the girl's parents are gonna be like, yeah, go ahead, go to North America. Yeah, be 16. Go go and live in Canada. Go live in uh, you know, go live in uh, you know, Grand Rapids. And you know, like yeah, it's not gonna happen. And so if he's really and, it, and this is, I'm not making this stuff up. If you're in a committed relationship with someone, that person has a say in, well, usually has a say in what you do. So I think with Russian kids, I'm not saying it's all because of the, the girlfriend situation, but more money, they have their family there. It's the comfort. It's a lot tougher to get these kids to come over. And I think with Amiro, that might impact where he's drafted. But on pure skill alone, absolutely a top 10 talent. Well, that's all interesting. Uh, yeah, the Russian factor seems to be not not dying as much as some people think it is. Uh, so let's talk about who do we want to go next. Uh, let's talk about a guy I don't really know anything about. Uh, Marit um, Kuznetsov. Yep. Tell me, tell me how to pronounce that. Kuznetsov. Yep. Kuznetsov. Thanks. You knew who I'm talking about, so I was at least close. Sure. Um, okay, so you got him ranked twelfth. Uh, that's way yeah. high. Uh, yeah. Yeah, sell me on this kid. What's the goods? All right. So I, I, I've been a hockey fan for about a little bit on the 40 years. And I think we all grew up, a lot of us, you know, watched, got a chance to watch the Russian teams, the old Russian teams, the Red Army teams. For me, it was the KLM line, the Makarovs and the Krutovs and the Larianovs and the Fatisovs on Kastanovs on defense. And and I, I love that style, that Russian style, that East-West, um, you know, just the brilliant passing and the playmaking and the, the chemistry, the instant chemistry it seemed like with line mates. And when I watch Kusnadinov, I get, I, get I get a little bit of Sergei And I'm not comparing him to Sergei Makarov. Okay, I'm not saying he's going to be the next, uh, the Russian Gretzky, but there are similarities in terms of how he's he's not a big guy. He's about five eleven, but he's a bulldog. He's he, he's low to the ground. Fantastic agility. The st straight line speed is really good. But again, it's an east west player. So the agility, the ability to weave and to move quickly in different directions, to change a, a pace, uh, to change shift gears and drop that shoulder and then stop on a dime, button hook and uh, connect on a cross ice pass with a trailer. Like all those things always impress me. And to me, they're basically synonymous with, with those old Russian teams. And when the thing about Kuznodinov, yeah, he was good at all the U18 tournaments. I got it. But SKA 1946 is one of the top programs in Russia. It's the SKA program, okay? It's the minor league or the, the, the junior team of the SKA program that has all the top players. Uh, and Kuznodinov was basically the third center on that team. 
Alexei Siplikov was a 2001. He should get drafted this year, by the way. He's their first-line center. Uh, you could say Maxim Kroviakov. He's a first-year eligible this year. He's going to get picked probably in the second or third round. He was more of a big physical two-way type. And then the third-line center was Kusnadinov, and he played on a line with, uh, I'm forgetting his name, uh, Richkov. I think Ilya Richkov. And, and they were the, the junior kids, and they— now, the thing is that even though he was given that third-line role, he was always used in big situations. He averaged about a point a game in a low-scoring league, uh, power play, penalty killing, crazy moves. He's good in the shootout. Uh, so, he, like I said, it, just some kids, the minute they hit the ice, they make their presence felt, and Kusnadinov can do that. Uh, if you watch the World Junior A Challenge, he was just terrorizing the other teams. He's always up ice. And being up ice a lot uh, doesn't mean you're cherry-picking. It means that you have really good anticipation, at least most of the time. Some kids, they're shameless cherry-pickers. We got it. But well, that's not Kusnadinov. He will pressure that point, man. And if there's a loose puck battle going on near high, uh, near the, near the uh, inside his blue line, he's going to be there. And he's, he comes away with the puck a lot. So... Uh, I see him as a, a definitely a top six two-way type power play penalty kill. Could run the power play from the half wall. Great passer. Puts, puts the right touch on his passes. Uh, so I really, I mean, I, I'm not, I know I'm not the only one that's bullish on him. I know I might be overly bullish on him. I think I think Central Scouting gave him a, a decent bump. Maybe they did. Maybe they did. I don't know. But but to me, he's basically been a leader for the Russian under 18 program as well. And I don't think Scott wants to lose this kid. I think they see him as their one center, one C next year. So good, good player, really good player. Yeah, Central Scouting has him twelfth. Uh, I think it is. Um, All right, so the bump. They 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 weren't that high on him. I think they had might even had him in the forties. And if they rank someone in the forties in Europe, that pretty much means that he's not going to be a second round pick. It means that he's going to be like a fourth or fifth round pick because you have to combine the rankings from North America and the goalies as well. Uh, so yeah, I'm glad to see that they gave him a bump. Yeah. It looks like he had a slow start to the season, but, uh, turned it on at the end. He was, as to your point, he was about a point a game. Player. Yeah. And a lot of, it, a lot of it was at even strength too. He, he was not on the top power play unit. You no, know, Scott's top power play unit has mostly 2000, 2001, uh, guys. And, you know, so I think something like, uh, 40 of his points, of his 40, uh, I think, well, no, like 35 or 30 of 32 of his points. I forgot the number somewhere. He's basically got, he's a, he's a five on five guy though. That's a good thing. All right. So if I'm, uh, if I'm listening to this podcast, scouting for the draft for my fantasy hockey, um, I'm curious about this player. I'm very interested. And, but my concern is the Russian factor and how long it might take him, if ever, that he comes over to the NHL and starts contributing to my fantasy roster. Do you have any thoughts on that? Absolutely. No, no, you're right. Any Russian kid, any Russian kid, unless that Russian kid has shown signs that he's willing to go to a junior program, I, a, a good barometer would be the import draft. Yeah. When the CHL does their import draft in June, it's usually about a week after the draft, uh, the NHL draft. Uh, that's where you know, like, uh, you most of the time, a CHL team will not waste a draft pick on a kid unless they have some type of, not confirmation, but they get like a, a warm and fuzzy from the agent uh, or, or the, the coach from his team that, hey, this kid yeah. wants to leave. He wants to go to America. Uh, he wants to go to Canada. So, like, you know, if I were you, I would draft him. No team just says, hey, you know what? Let's go draft Rasmus. If that's the case, then Rasmus Dalene would have been first overall in the CHL draft. And 
uh, so on and so forth. So I, I think, uh, you know, I don't know if his shot, his shot totals will be all that high because he seems to me more like a pass first kind of guy, even though his finishes are brilliant uh, near the goal. Uh, but yeah, you, you got You got to always figure that a lot of these Russian kids are not. It's not like the, the, the like the Eastern Bloc crumbled and how we saw all those Russian kids in the in the early '90s and mid '90s were just flooding the first round because we knew that once communism fell, that all these kids wanted to come to uh, you know uh, you know America or Canada, you know. The, democratic society it's not like that anymore like russia is a rich country they got everything there that we have and it's uh now on top of that the khl could offer these kids really big contracts more than an nhl uh entry-level contract at least uh sometimes so yeah the import draft is a, is a really great point that you made as a good barometer because it, it isn't a draft really so much as it is a recruiting bulletin board i mean the play you're the teams to your sure. point don't don't draft players unless they know that they'll there's a very good chance or definite possibility that they'll come. I mean, it's all preordained and a lot of it happens at the NHL draft. You've got the GMs there and the the agents are all there and the, the junior GMs go and they do their homework. And a lot of that is done at tournaments yeah. and the draft. And they talk to the agents and they say, Hey, look, we've got the fifth overall pick this year's import draft. And we really like this, uh, uh, this Marat Kushnitinov uh your your guy um what is what are the chances he'll come and play in and kingston this season and the agent will be like no 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 he's he's happy where he is his his family is his family or the team's been really good to him and they've they've promised him all these things and he's going to play a big role on this team next year and he's really happy where he is don't waste your pick on him um the, the only thing you might see is is you know team like the London Knights might have an agreement. Okay, we'll we'll he'll come to London, but nowhere else we'll draft him. And then Saginaw's like, "Screw you, we're picking him." Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> just just yeah, to screw no, over no, just to screw over London. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the import draft is 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 very interesting. Uh, okay, so another player, I have one last guy I want to talk to you about if you got the time is uh, sure. the gu- yeah, right on, man, the gunslinger Noel Gunler. Uh, let's see, you've got him ranked 34th, which is a little bit lower than a lot of the other places. Uh, North American Central yeah. Skating, sorry, uh, yeah, they have him ranked as the ninth top European player. Hockeyprospect.com, I'm not sure how recent this ranking is, but uh, I have a lot of respect for their uh, evaluations. They have him in, in 10th, top 10. Uh, yeah. he's, he's no lower than 19th anywhere else. So you have him 34th, which is actually up 11 spots. So you're starting to warm up yeah. on, on Gundler. <laughs> There's a long well, way to go I'm okay. for you to, to yeah. bridge the gap with the general consensus. But I don't believe in ranking people based on the general consensus. So why do you like him where you have him? What do you think he's he's missing from his game that everyone else seems to be you about? Know- Gunler's been a real. I'm gonna. I'm gonna, for lack of a better. Gunler's been a real pain in the neck to evaluate for me this year, and not. It's not really his own fault. Uh, I I watched him last year, and he tore apart the J20. And I'm like, okay, this is a first round kid. He's a first round talent. I'm not gonna put him on the level of a Lucas Raymond, or an Alexander Holtz, or a uh, you know even a Rodion Amirov. I said I'm I'm gonna give him like a a, a low 20s. And I'm going to look forward to just watch him progress and have a, a really fun draft season. And in that, 
part of the requirements could be that if you're going to be one of the top prospects in Sweden, that you're going to play at the U24 Nations tournament in August. You're going to play at the U, uh, U24 Nations tournament in November. You're going to play at, you know, at least at a minimum, be allowed to, to uh, compete for a spot at the World Juniors. And so, you know, the thing about Gunler is he plays for a very good team, a competitive team. Lulea is, you know, uh, Frölunda owns that that league in the SHL, but Lulea was willing to give him a full-time job, albeit on a depth role. And when I watched Gunler at the beginning of the season, uh, he wasn't playing all that much, but when he played in the in the Champions Hockey League, which is kind of like the exhibition thing, uh, well, it's not an exhibition, but it's, it's like a, a tournament within the season for European teams. Uh, he was pretty good. He was good. He, and I'm like, okay, good. He's a, he's a top 20, 25 pick. Uh, but when I watched him in league play, I was getting a lot of Kaliev, all the Kaliev vibes, where he just wasn't, there wasn't like a whole lot of energy. Whereas when I was watching Lucas Raymond in the same situation, being a depth player on a good team, not getting a whole lot of ice time, uh, he was buzzing all over the place. He wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't scoring a lot and he wasn't setting up a whole lot of chances. But I never once came away and said, oh, man, Raymond, what a, what a lazy, aloof, or disinterested player. Where, whereas with Gunler, that is that beginning of the season block, let's say, that uh, late August, September, October, November block was, in my opinion, not very good for Noel Gunler. On top of that, Sweden did not invite him to the WJSS, the summer tournament. Lucas Raymond and... and uh, Holtz were there. Gunler wasn't invited. And it's basically an exhibition uh, in Plymouth this year. So that was in late July. He wasn't invited to the U24 Nations in August. He wasn't invited to the U24 Nations in November. So three major U20 events, because he's a late birthday, he can't play at the U18 events. uh, Those three events he was not even invited to. And I'm like, well, what the hell is that all about? Like, why, why is he not being invited? And then I have contacts in Sweden. I talked to them. They said, hey, listen, man, bottom line is this. Uh, they just don't want him on the national program. And, and I'm like, okay, fine. That's cool. Uh, is it, is it like uh, off ice? They said, no, it's nothing off ice. It's, it's kind of just a difference of opinion. It's just uh, some perceived sort of perceptions, some attitudes. And I said, all right, fine. But even still, I never got the chance to really see Gunler outside of, yes, he's good in open ice and he has a great wrist shot and he's got good size and his hockey IQ is pretty good. He's not, and when I say like lack of effort, or uh, I'm talking at it from a, a consistency standpoint. So if you're going to show me a video of Gunnar throwing a check, I want you to show me a video of Gunnar throwing 10 checks a game for 15 straight games because anyone can do that. And I go, can only go by my notes. And every time I've, every game I've watched Gunnar, I'm like, he, he's kind of like, he's got a clean jersey. You know, like in baseball, how there's certain players that the jerseys are always dirty. Uh, now you don't have to have a dirty jersey to be a good player, but in hockey, I'd like to think that coaches want their players to be more engaged, to battle for pucks, to to do the dirty work. And in the first half of the season, I did not see Gunnar do that. And then in the second half of the season, you know, like I said, midterm, I think I ranked him somewhere at like 45. I'm like, you know what? To me, he looks like a really talented offensive player that isn't respected by his national federation. And on top of that, I, I have questions about his consistency his compete level and consistency and so that set off alarm bells and people went crazy and i really don't care i mean i don't rank people for for opinion i rank people just to give people a general idea of what i think 
And in the second half of the season, though, uh, towards the end, when the games grew more important for Lulea, I, I saw an uptick in his, I guess, compete level. And listen, I, some might not care about compete level. I definitely care about compete level. I don't like guys running to the bench 30 seconds into their shift. I don't like guys that are basically avoiding contact to stay in the middle of the ice, wait for the puck to come for them. I, I don't like that. It's just a personal preference. And I've, I've, and that's why last year with Kaliev, it was the same situation. Like, dude, he's a fantastic goal scorer, but he's always on the outside. He's not doing the things that you want to, you know, want him to do. Now, Gunler, of course, played against men. And unlike Kaliev, Gunler is responsible defensively. He's positioned properly in the defensive zone. He, he will support the slot, cover the slot if the defensemen go. So, again, I understand why people are high on him. But to me, and then, of course, the hockey news now comes out. And I respect the, the hockey news a ton. I've always been a subscriber. They come out with the actual quotes that the issue with Gunler was that he talked back to coaches and there was a concern about immaturity. But that was before this season, right? That all reports out of Lulea is that he's been a pretty good soldier and th there have been no issues. But still, again, I, I, I have to go back to what I saw uh, based on his draft resume, right? His overall draft resume, it's not like he destroyed the SHL. He had, I think, like, what do you have, like four goals this year? Um, and I know stats aren't everything, but again, I'm, I'm basically gambling that Gunler's going to have to prove me wrong. I don't think he's a polished product. I think that there's still question marks that if you were immature at, let's say, 17, uh, but you finally become a good, a good uh, worker bee, uh, with an adult team, what's going to happen when you go to North America and you're a first round pick and you have this, these expectations on you and things don't go your way. Cause it seems like everything went his way this year with Lulea as far as being on that competitive team. So just for, if, to put finality on this Gunler thing <laughs> is that I think he is definitely a top 15 prospect skill wise, the skill set, the size the uh, the vision, the playmaking, the, the the stick work, the shot, of course, the shot, and also the the ability to adhere to the defensive zone. But at the same time, he didn't blow me away this year. I, I never really felt like there were specific instances outside of a breakaway here or a two on one there where I'm like, kid's the best player on the ice. Even even and there were times where Alexander Holtz was the best player for you Gardens. There was there were even a, 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 one or two games where Lucas Raymond maybe in one period, was the best player in that period for Falunda. I, I never got that sense with Guller, and that's why he's ranked where he's ranked. Interesting. Yeah, there's been a number of players who have, and it sounds a little bit like Ryan Merkley, who have all the skill in the world, um, but can't make it on to their international teams. They're, they're, yeah, Sweden certainly could have used them at the World Juniors this year. They were... Um, really hurting for offensive upside on the forward ranks. Their defense was fantastic, but you know, they didn't really have any firepower up front and he sounds like exactly what the doctor ordered, but uh, you know, the team didn't want him there despite how badly they needed him. So that, yeah, that, that speaks that listen, volumes, doesn't it? Well, I mean, may, well, listen, I mean, Ryan Merkley, I, I'm sure he, I don't want to, I don't know. I don't know Merkley from, from Adam. I don't know what his deal is, but Pound for pound, he's one of the most hated players in the OHL. I mean, he was just not liked. And it, it took a lot of mentoring and a lot of patience for him to go to London and shut his mouth. And Well, he didn't really shut his mouth, 
But he, I, I, if you watch him on the ice, I, he was still agitating. And that's not really, Gundler's not like that. He's not a, you know, there's a time where Merkley comes across as a real jerk. And that's not Gundler. You know what I'm saying? I think Gundler might be more, uh, not, not a big fan of authority. Maybe that was the problem when he was younger. Uh, you know, maybe he felt like he wanted to do things his way. But, you know, whereas, you know, Merkley was like making teammates hate him and things. I don't think that was the issue with Gundler. Uh, I, I think it was more like, you have to maybe speculate that maybe they were trying to, you know, they, they have Holtz and, and Raymond already there. So why add him to the World Juniors when we already got the two young kids? Uh, I don't know. Like I said, it, I, I, I could only go by what I see with my eyes and what I hear from other people. And if, if someone tells me that, hey, this kid was cut from every major tournament and or was not even invited to any major tournament. He was invited to the U19 Five Nations in February, but he was hurt. Uh, so he couldn't make it. But that's like a subsidiary. That's like a really not, not an important tournament from a, for a, a prospect of his stature. He would have been the best player in that tournament. Um, but you know, like I said, I, I, I'm willing to be proven wrong. And I've, I've told, some people are so mad that I, I'm low on him. Like, just get over it. Just fucking get over it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just cursed, but just get over it. You know, like he's low. And if he becomes this great player, I'm rooting for the kid. I don't root against kids. I don't want them to fail. I just have to, you know, when you watch 25 or 30 leagues a year and then multiply that by how many teams and how many prospects, you, you know, you're going to have certain things that are going to convince you that, you know what? Hey, listen. And the thing about Gunler is I, and I, I wrote a very, very glowing uh, uh, analysis of him in my sky, in my, my profile of him. And, you know, I just said that, hey, just I think he needs to up, increase the intensity a little bit. And that's it. So we'll see. We'll see. I, I definitely think the fact that that it was in the hockey news and it's been it's it's obviously every every NHL team is going to ask him that question when they finally interview him before they draft. They say, hey, dude, why were you not on those teams? You, this coach A said this about you. Coach B said this about you. What's the deal? And then they have to make the decision. You know, some teams are like, hey, I don't, dude, I don't care if you were, uh, you know, stealing hubcaps and, you know, you did time in, in, in county. Like, you could play for my team any day. And other teams will be like, no, no, we don't want any, any things like that. With this smoke, there's fire. Perception's reality. Let's move on. And Matthew Barzell is a perfect example where the Bruins were like, oh, he's too cocky because he said, you know, uh, I'm, I'm one of the best players in the draft or whatever the, the report was. And the Bruins passed on him. For character guys, and then well, Jake DeBrus is pretty good, but uh, they still like they passed on one of the best players in the NHL because he was a little cocky at an interview, and they were concerned that he he hurt his kneecap because he was you know horsing around in the locker room. I think that's what happened with Barzell that draft year. So, um, you know, like I said, it's 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 a, it's, a, it's all a big gamble. It's all a big gamble. Rankings are gambles. Drafting are gambles. I mean. If he if if Gunler scored more, if he was more uh, had more fire in his belly, I might be more uh, you know uh, I guess generous with his ranking. But like I said, I mean I, I just I, I there's certain things I look for players and uh, that one aspect of his game I didn't see a whole lot this year. Yeah, well, hey, lack of um, consistency or compete is a major hurdle for these players to overcome because while he's got all kinds of talent and he's good enough to play um in the leagues that he's playing in now if he wants to make it to the nhl it takes more than than skill to get there you got to have um 
consistency and professionalism and a super high compete level or he, he just ain't going to make it. So yeah. that alone is, is worth knocking him down um, on our rankings. It's like, hey, yeah, no, he's good enough to be a, a top 10 pick, but um, I don't know if he's ever going to to realize his potential. Yeah. And, and you know that, what? Right? Here's, here's the, the last thing I'll say about it is that, and not just really for Gullner, for, for, for any, any prospect, that if you go back and you read, let's say, you look at every major talent, let's say consensus top 15 talent, every year there's always one that has like a quote-unquote issue, right? A red flag, an attitude. Uh, what, even if it's, a, if, if it's a perception, it's still a perception that's there. When you read Alexis Lafreniere's scan report, you're not going to read that he has an attitude problem. When you read Capo Capco's scan report, you're not going to read that he had an attitude problem. When you read Patrick Laine's scan report, you read that, yes, when he was younger, he flipped the coach a bird and he had, he had issues. And then, lo and behold, what happened with, with, with Patrick Laine? Yeah, he had a 40-goal season, but he had off-ice issues. He had the whole Fortnite addiction. He, it was, and now, of course, he bounced back. He had a pretty good year this year. But uh, you have to look at the big picture and say, historically, if a player is branded with this type of a label— what becomes of them? What become it? What becomes of Carol Cabano? What becomes of Angelo Esposito? And I'm not saying that Gunlin's gonna become a bust. It's just that, and I said this, and some people got mad. Usually, the scouts, for all their faults and all the mistakes that they make, uh, that usually they're right. When there's a kid who's got a who's got an attitude issue or perceived attitude issue, usually it it, it they were right in passing on that player. Of course, you know, Line A, though, in his defense, dude was like a friggin' record scoring, record setting goal scorer in the Liga as a 17 year old, whereas Gunner's like a kind of like a middle of the road depth player, like stats wise. So, um, you know, well, it's one of those things where if, if people ask me what if he's drafted, what do I think? I'm going to say boom or bust. He can either be a 35 goal scorer or he'll never make it. It's that simple. He's not going to be a checker, he's not going to be a grit guy that every team's going to want to trade for the trade deadline. He's either going to score and he's, he's going to be nothing. And I, you know, I think it's pretty reasonable considering all the uh, time I've spent watching him play and a, a lot, a lot of others feel the same way as well. Kind of reminds me of Josh Hosang conversations I've had as well, where yeah, he, he's exactly. got like super amount of talent, but the just doesn't want to, doesn't want to play. But but in but Gunler all reports out and I just want to say it again all reports that Gunler was good this year like there were no issues per se that were at least reported so you have to say that you know what maybe he is turning the corner whereas with Ho Sang it it always follows him everywhere he goes he doesn't shut, shut his mouth he's always uh, give, causing problems everywhere he goes uh, even though uh, the, the the skill on the ice is obvious uh, but you know like I said if I have him at, at thirty three. Uh, or 34, he's probably going to get another little bump because there's going to be a couple guys I'm going to drop. Uh, you know, like if I got him at, at, at like let's say 30, and he goes at 22, like ooh, I was off by eight eight spots. So like, uh, and again, I'm not trying to predict the draft. I'm just saying is it, it's not that far fetched to rank him where I have him, give or take five spots. Now, if some people want to rank him as a top 10 player, then I, I could see that, but. I think they're probably leaning more towards the skill upside part and willing to overlook, willing to overlook any perceived shortcomings or you know shortcomings that I think are shortcomings, 
you know, and and it's their right. It's their ranking. So it's that simple. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Steve, I love talking hockey with you, man. Yeah, likewise. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, that's all the players I have. Uh, thanks so much for your time, Steve. Everybody give uh, Steve Cornianos, the draft analyst, a uh, follow on Twitter. Check out his blog. Steve's not uh, someone who's an aspiring NHL scout or GM. He's just doing this out of his passion for hockey. And it shines through the way he talks about prospects when he comes on my podcast and when I listen to his. Um, So I got all the time in the world for you, Steve. And I can't thank you enough for giving me some of yours and coming on my podcast again. Yeah, man. It's a shame that there's not going to be a draft this year. Uh, We could have, you know, it would have been on your turf or close to your turf at least. And, uh, it's the one thing that I'm kind of like down about is that, you know, it seems like we make it a, a yearly thing yeah. get together at the draft, but uh, unfortunately it's not going to happen this year. But yeah, I love, I love your podcast, man. I love coming on here and uh, we've been doing this for a while now and I'm always available anytime. I uh, appreciate that, man. Thanks so much. And hopefully we'll, uh, we'll find a, a tournament or something that we can have that beer at sometime in the season. Yeah, definitely, man. All right. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode. Thanks again, Steve. All right, Pete. Thanks. Take care.